family, I'm so happy to announce the launch of my brand new premium podcast. It's called Ideas That Matter Plus. This is an exciting new development that we've been working on for some time. This after seeing a lot of you request coming through saying thank you for what we've done and wanting more. Ideas That Matter Plus is a more targeted podcast that focuses on business strategies and more high-level thinking to help highly ambitious entrepreneurs, SMEs, business owners and founders, even the CEOs of big business. It only costs 450 Rand per month and will be coming in, but I mean coming in hot. So, subscribe now to Ideas That Matter Plus, now available on Spotify or Apple Podcast Store. Sayonara. Hello family, Vusi here. Over the years, I've had the most incredible privilege of being led, taught, mentored, and given incredible wisdoms and insight by some of the most formidable leaders. One of the things I want to do going forward is to bring you into my world, is to share with you the people with whom I happen to have the privilege of audience. These are incredible business leaders, social leaders, people who lead not only civic organization and society and movements, but also people who build incredible institutions that fundamentally change the world. For you and I, what lessons can we learn from these? My own point of view is that every lesson you're about to learn, somebody already forgot. So if you can access somebody else's insights and wisdom, you might actually learn through them a lesson that would save you time, anguish, and loss. So might I introduce to you what we're going to be doing as a segment of the podcasts, Conversations with Leaders. We call them osmosis. Why? Because the idea is through listening to them, you should learn through the process of osmosis. Over the next series of weeks, I will be replaying our very first season of Osmosis, which went live on YouTube some two years back. We've converted it to audio for you to enjoy. As we do this, we're recording season two, and I have to tell you, it's a banger. We've got some fantastic individuals from all around the world sharing with us the most fascinating insights about leadership, personal development, growth, and living a life of meaning, purpose, and impact. So from me, Vossi Tembuguayo and the team, enjoy the next series of these conversations with leaders. Friends, entrepreneurs, there are very few people who loom so large in reputation and track record and character and personality that they need no introduction. You've heard the words before, so-and-so needs no introduction, but really, our next guest needs zero introduction. We're joined today on Osmosis by Michael Jordan. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe anything that he says. Not true. It, you know, there's a... There's <laughs> a when, we, when we were doing the research and in my script, it said, Michael, describe yourself to us in two words. And then I realized... You're Michael Jordan. You don't need to describe anything. You're just, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Jordan. So how are you doing? You're very kind. No, thank you. I'm doing great. I'm loving my new life as a venture capitalist. And I'm yeah. actually very happy I don't have to work for a big corporate anymore. I'm, I mean, I must say, I, I came here to meet a banker. So I thought I'd wear the formal clothing. I'd do the tie. I get here, you're in jeans. You've got a... 
you know, you're rocking your polo shirt, it's folded <laughs> up, what's going on? You know, I, I think I'm allowed to say that in corporate life you find a lot of people who trade style for substance. And one of the interesting things about being wow. in a startup is that you can't compensate with style anymore. It really is important what you say, what you do, what you know. So, it, in, a, in a sense, it, being dressed like this, and you know, if it hadn't been for you, it would have been short pants, but being dressed like that is you're really forced to come to the table with substance every time you interact with someone. Wow, wow. So, today you run Montgrain. Yeah. What does that even mean? It's a very small company. Um, in fact, um, I'm the only employee. Um, <laughs> and what, what it does is I, I try and get involved with startups. I, I love startups. I think startups are the best way of solving the problems of the world. Right. Yeah, and that doesn't mean that governments don't have a role to play, right. or big corporates don't have a role, or civil society. But startups can take ideas and they can turn them into something sustainable. Right. And so solve everything from water to education to power, to choose a problem, right. and the startup will find a solution to do it. So that's what I do. I, I am fascinated by the idea because you start out in a corporate. My understanding was you a bank teller was your first job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was it's a bank teller. Phenomenal. Yeah. So you start out in a corporate, you work your way up, you get to the pinnacle of the corporate. At the peak of your career in corporate, how many people did you have under you, as it were? So for what it's worth, it was just about 33,000, which, which is a lot of people and the weight of responsibility of, in a sense, looking after them because, you know, their salaries and their, you know, their living is dependent yeah. on you. Yeah. Today, of course, um, I'm in a different world where with startups, you can start something with very few employees yeah. and still have magnificent impact. Yeah. Uh, one story that's told is WhatsApp, which we all used to communicate. Yeah. At the height when it was sold was less than 50 employees, right, yet yeah. they had close to a billion customers. So that's what the new world now allows. How did you, and we'll come to sort of the chronology in a moment, but I'm interested at Michael the philosopher. So how do you go from working in a large corporate, rules, rigor, structure, processes, protocol, to understanding not only the role that technology can play, but also how agility is the way we should be living now. Did something happen? Were you in an accident? Did you, did you fall <laughs> off a flight of stairs? Like, how, how did you, what happened there? I, I, you know, as much as I say, you know, I'm happy to not work in a corporate anymore. I think I was fortunate that the corporate that I worked for was a wonderful one. Yeah. First Rand was really started by the entrepreneurs who founded Rand Merchant Bank. Yeah. And the whole ethos was that you need to have traditional values, yeah. but you could also have innovative ideas. And there was a lot of empowerment where individuals could follow those things that they felt were good ideas. Yeah. So, so I was really lucky that as much as we had to respect proper governance, those things are important, you could take risks on new business ideas and risks on new technology. And even in that corporate, we could start new ventures. So there was something to be said for entrepreneurship mm. as opposed to you know, starting something completely on your own without the benefit of a brand, etc. Mm. So many of the things that I'm doing today is, I suppose, a logical extension of the culture that I was taught. So you, you're in, in, in the first round group, particularly the retail banking business. Um, and for a long while, traditional banking was exactly that. Just traditional and boring. I mean, I think the most exciting thing to happen in 30 years was the collapse of Sambo, you know, and it was only exciting for the spectators, yeah, yeah. not necessarily for the depositors yeah. who lost their yeah. money. But then all of a sudden, it was almost as if there was a new lease of life injected into the team at F&B, and there was innovation and new ideas and iPads. And yes. what, 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 what fueled your drive for innovating? 
So let me, if I may, just share a little bit of my leadership yeah. journey. Yeah. And when I started, I was very young yeah. and probably felt a lot of pressure and felt I had to do a hell of a lot. Yeah. And when it got right to the end, I realized, or by then I'd realized that it's not about me, it's all about the team. And it's setting people up around you that can succeed. So you've got to get the right people. They have to be better than you. You have to empower them. You have to set them free. And of course, there are general conversations about reaching their targets. But when you free up your team, and they in turn free up their teams, it is the most amazing thing what can come out of a system. People will surprise not only you as the leader, they'll actually end up surprising themselves. Wow. And so this is really the story of what happened at at F&B. I would love to say I came up with all those hundreds of innovations, but it wasn't me. It was a cultural wave that allowed people to come up with these ideas, to try new things, to sometimes fail, but sometimes succeed. And then if you succeed in a big corporate, suddenly you have 9 million customers, so the leverage effect yes, is so much bigger. Yes. So you said a couple of things I want to double click on. The first was you said, get a great team. The second was they have to be better than you. Yeah. They have to be better yeah. than you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think the secret in life is obviously people. Um, you can walk into a room and everybody just draws energy out of you. Yeah. Or you can walk in a room and it suddenly gives you energy and it inspires yeah. you. Yeah. People yeah. are like that. I mean, your life is yeah. directly correlated with the people that you have around you. Now, you can't choose all your family, of course. Yeah. But you can choose your friends. And if you're in a leadership position, you can choose the people that you work with. Yeah. Now, the best leaders surround themselves with people that are better than them. And they're actually not threatened by them. And if you, you think about it, I mean, I'm sure in your head you can think of some great leaders um, and, uh, and you can think of some bad leaders. Yeah. And the bad leaders are the people that don't want somebody next to them saying, guess what, I think you made a mistake there. That's the wrong thing of doing. So you actually really have to learn not to make good decisions, but to facilitate good decision making. A completely oh. different thing. Oh. So, so many people think the leader's got to be all powerful and know everything. That's not your job. You've got to tease out the right answers of the system, even though if you went into a debate and you thought this is the right way of doing it, and your team says, no, we think it's that, you should accept it because the best idea must win. That's the what. How do you do it? You know, I had this vision in my head that if we had an exco meeting and somebody from the outside, let's say you walked in, but you didn't know who anyone was, and you heard us debate an idea, that, and you walked out of there again, I wouldn't want you to say, oh, that was the HR guy, that was the chairman, this guy was head of finance. I would like you to say, gee, I heard a good debate about an idea. I had all the pros and cons, and in the end, the best idea wins. So what it really means is that as a leader, you go into an exco meeting or any meeting, and you say, guys, here's the problem. Can we agree that this is the problem? And then you say, yes. Now what is the solution? I think it's this. What do you think? And you just have a proper debate where you don't take things personally, and you just make sure that you know, right in the end, the best idea was. Okay. It takes a bit of time. It's a cultural change. But once you've got that going, it's super powerful. A lot is said about the role of good mentorship. Very little of the research we've done on you and the literature written about you is said about how in your journey you've been mentored by others. Have there been people in your life who've been guiding lights, sort of uh, lighthouses that have given you a steer in a direction? They have, and of course our group was founded by yeah. individuals Absolutely. that have, you know, yeah. have a big charisma and that influenced the culture of the whole group. Um, I've been fortunate to have some great bosses. I mean, my last boss, Sijuan Glathana, uh, is really an awesome guy. Um, I think one day he should also run the country. But the, the, sure. the, all of those guys did one thing for me was, to a large degree, they also left me alone. <laughs> And allowed me to come and speak to them when I had an issue. 
Um, and so I was able to also find inspiration, not just from them, because they would be the easy ones, but from everyone you interact with. If I can just tell you a quick story, you'd walk into a branch and somebody would moan at you the whole time because you have the worst products, the worst systems, and therefore they can't do well. And you'd walk into another branch and somebody would tell you that they're doing so well, yeah. the products are so great, the yeah. systems are yeah. so great. Yeah. And the difference between those two branches weren't the products or the systems, it was the people who ran them. So I get infected, I get enthusiastic when other people are enthusiastic. And so if you ask me about mentors, it's not one or two or three, it's hundreds of people, and often it's, the, if you want to call it, the ordinary people who give me the greatest kick in life. Yeah. I know you're an avid reader. Yeah. Uh, I also know, like me, you, you read more than one book at the same time. Is that because you have a short attention span, or is it because you don't feel you have enough time to get through everything? I don't know. I'm sure I could come up with an excuse. So I'll <laughs> just take the one that's easiest at hand. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's like having multiple conversations and yeah. you can keep them going. But yes, reading is one of life's big pleasures. Yeah. But if you had to ask me to give a tip to people out there, it would be to read. Read yeah. broadly, read widely, read things you don't agree with. Yeah. Just read all the time because all the knowledge in the world is out there. It's yeah. at your disposal. It's a wonderful thing. You've just started on this journey now with Zero Bank. And... Yes. Um, I jump a bit, but I want to, if you can, give me a sense of why you would leave banking, mm. go into VC, to find yourself back in banking, albeit in a what it seems to us as very disruptive, non-traditional yeah. way. You know, if you, let's say, play for one soccer team, yeah. and you get called up the next day yeah. to play in another team that's going to play your old team... Yeah. I just couldn't do that. You know, I spent so much time with First Strand. I have friends there. They were people who shaped me. So for me, I had to put distance between myself and that bank. And it was a good four or five years until I've now announced it, that we're going to do something else. In the end, I had to return to what I know well. I know banking well. I studied it. It's my passion. I know everything about it. But I think the four or five years has also given the opportunity to really rethink what banking for the future would look like. Hmm. And it won't have branches, and it won't have paperwork, and it won't have cumbersome requirements. It will be on the mobile revolution. So Bank Zero is going to be a mobile bank with a card, and certainly we won't be a bank with high fees. We'd like to attack electronic fees wherever we can. And we just want to put power back in the hands of people so they can manage their own finances, and that is banking of the future. Hmm. Do you think the South African market is ready for it? I definitely think so. So first of all, if you have a smartphone, you can WhatsApp, you can on Facebook, you can on Instagram. Don't you want to do your banking the same way as well? Sure. So that's the big smartphone revolution. Yeah. But then secondly, I do think South Africans are paying billions of rands too many on bank fees. Sure. And those bank fees should go back into the hands of the, uh, the, or the pockets of the consumers. Sure. When we come back, I want to have a conversation with you about scale. The entrepreneurs we work with yeah. battle with this thing called scale, with exponentiality. Of course. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Osmosis. We're chatting to entrepreneurial rock star. Uh, he really is a rock star. I mean, he dresses like a rock star, walks like one, talks like one. I'm convinced he's just, you know, living a, a, a separate life here as a venture capitalist. Uh, my good friend, Michael Jordan. So, Michael, uh, at the end of the last segment, we spoke a bit about building this business and kind of how you got into. Uh, you're now running Mont Grey yeah. and you have a number of investments in Mont yeah. Grey. But I want to talk to you a bit about scale. Yeah. I'll tell you why scale. So I'm a scale guy. I, I can't get excited when we do small things. Yeah. I want to do big things. Yeah. 
And even if the thing we do is small, I want it to have a big impact. So I'm yeah. like, how are we going to impact thousands yeah. of lives here? Um, I'm also, I also know that it's easily the hardest thing to do mm. as an entrepreneur is to scale a business. What have you learned over the years about how to scale that you think has given you the advantage of understanding how to scale? So, as you, I'm a venture capitalist, and it's all about growth. Yeah. But I've learned a couple of things. The one is to not run too far ahead of the entrepreneur that pitches to you. Yeah, mm. I, I do that. You know, you start imagining how far it can grow. Um, the other one is that it is really good to prove yourself in a very small version of the big problem that you're 100%. trying to solve. Yeah. So there's a, actually a yeah. book. Let me take you outside of venture capital into the medicinal world where all the scientists in the world try to solve cancer. But right. they couldn't solve cancer until somebody said, I'm going to take one very specific form of cancer, which happened to leukemia, solve that, and then use the learnings out of solving leukemia and then try it to another form of cancer. Another. That is how cancer was eventually solved. So when I hear people come up with a macro solution to solve, let's say, education in South Africa, I'm inherently skeptical. It sounds like that's something that could scale. I would say, let's go and test it in one school, or in one subject in one school. And if that works, then you start scaling over there. So please understand, I'm not against scaling. I love solving big problems. I just think the way that you solve it is you start small. Facebook started small. It started in one university in America, and now it's got over a billion customers. Right. Um, Amazon started as just selling books, now it sells everything in the right. world. Right. Start small, get it right, execute well, but then dream big because then you can start. That process of iteration, right? Yeah. But hold on. There's also sort of the counter literature that says scale, scale and scale fast. Get there really, really quickly. Um, how do you balance the patience of the process with the, the size of the problem and how quickly we need to fix it? So, you know, I think, for instance, about we were having the conversation off the record. South has a 28% unemployment rate, yeah. 42% by the broad definition. So there is a part of us that almost has the responsibility to yeah. fix these big yeah. problems really, really quickly. How yeah. do we balance patience of process with, with the speed at which we need to move? So it's wonderful to be impatient. You should be impatient. And you should try and get it right as quickly as possible yeah. so that you can go big. Yeah. But don't go big until you don't have it right. Don't start the next McDonald's until the first McDonald's oh, works perfectly. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. And I, I think that took them 10 years. There are examples in That's South right. Africa yeah, I could mention. Yeah. You know, Learn everything about the business and then scale. Now, there are exceptions. So an exception would be a business where um, one party dominates it and becomes a monopoly. You could argue that Google is in that position. You could even say Uber is in that position. It's very difficult for a second player to come in. But they, too have perfected the model somewhere, and it's now only a question of scaling it in the rest of the world. Yeah. So, so I suppose, and I hope it isn't misread as conservatism, it's just get it right first. And what that ties into, and I'm sure you would have experienced <laughs> it, is many entrepreneurs fall in love with the idea. Yeah. Um, and ideas are the easiest thing in the world. Executing yeah. it is the hardest thing oh, in the world. Man. First prove that you can execute this thing properly. You'll learn a whole lot of things. You'll learn the industry and competitors and their responses. And only once you find you've got that right, then you know now is the time to scale. When an entrepreneur comes to see Michael, and he says, I have it. I have the panacea. Yeah. What do you look for? 
Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you it's actually quite difficult to come and see me, and it's only because too many people want to drink coffee, and I can't <laughs> drink so many coffees in a, Man, in a single day. So they ask you for coffee as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, coffee. I feel like we should invent a coffee company for just entrepreneurial <laughs> no, meetings. Right? I have to say, if you ask me to typify the South African startup scene, I'd say it involves just a lot of coffee, coffee. you know. Um, so, so I try and filter things by, you know, people mailing me, and obviously I look for a great idea, but I also look for something different, you know, somebody who can... Look at a topic just differently to the conventional way of doing thing, yeah, things, yeah. but then to tie up with my previous point, a track record of execution. There's nothing that impresses me as much as somebody who's actually gotten it working. So the next one, and some people would say that's a bit of lazy venture capitalism, is just you want to see has this person taken their concept in the roughest form possible and taken it to market and found people who are willing to use the product. Gotcha, gotcha. So I don't know if that idea is a good idea or a great or a stupid idea, but the market always knows. So it's a little test for somebody whether they can execute, and it's also a test on whether they can sell. I think sales is one of the most underrated skills, and if you're a CEO who can't sell, um, you're not going to be successful. And I'm not just talking about selling a product to the market. If you want to recruit employees to join your team, a good IT guy, you have to yeah. sell, you know, a guy, a guy or girl. If it's um, somebody who's going to help you in your logistics, yeah. they have to take a chance on you whether you're going to pay them. That's a form of sales. So execution and sales are the things that you really are looking for, plus that, that angle, that, that X factor of looking at the world just slightly differently. Yeah, yeah. So do you go for the, the classical well-thought-through Excel spreadsheet, 50 PowerPoint presentation kind of entrepreneur? No. Or do you walk into the guy that goes piece of paper, here's the idea, here's how it works, and here's, here's, here's my skin in the game. Here's what I've done in the past. Yeah, so skin in the game is also very important, you know, where the people are putting everything in. Yeah. Um, there, there are a couple of heuristics, and the moment I tell them to you now, people can game them. But the one is generally people who drive, uh, arrive to pitch for venture capital in suits. Yeah. They, they don't do well. Okay, so they're already trying to make up for, uh, for something else. The, the other one is people that pay themselves high salaries out of a startup. Now, that doesn't mean if you pay low salaries, you will fail, right. won't fail. But I can guarantee you that every single startup that I've seen where people pay themselves, let's say, the same salary they got in a corporate, that will definitely not succeed. So things that do work, the things that do impress, is if somebody knows everything about their topic. If they just know more than anyone else out there. And again, today it's so easy. You can read up about it. You can speak to people. You have access to all the knowledge in the world. So have real, real knowledge of, of your topic. And then, as I say, you've proven that you've taken that knowledge and you've turned it into something that you can implement. That means it's not always the smartest people who make it. It's the people who can translate an idea into something real. Tell me about this people who pay themselves a lot of money. <laughs> Why is that an important indicator of, of the kind of person you're dealing with? Well... Um, first of all, most of even the most successful entrepreneurs don't do it in the first instance for money. 100%. They do it because they find a problem 100%. that they're obsessed with. It's like a riddle that they can solve, and that is what they want to do. They're not doing it for the fancy office, the car, and the salary that they can pay themselves. They want to solve that problem. That's the first reason. So just by paying themselves a big salary, um, you see that that's not necessarily their first yeah. priority. So that, the second thing, of course, is that... Mostly we say time is money, but in startup worlds, money, money is, is time, money. Yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. If, you, if you use very little money, you extend the time that you can keep the startup alive, that you can keep your experiment oh, so alive, your runway. your runway. So if you, the cost that you pay yourself is much lower, if you can live on a much smaller salary, 
you've got much longer time in the laboratory of life yeah. to go and prove that your concept can work. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you come across people who looked like one thing and then during the transaction they just weren't what you thought they were? Of course that has happened. But, but I suppose in fairness, the, the flip side could also have happened. If somebody said, gee, this is you know, the venture capitalist that I don't want to have on board. They asked the wrong questions or their way of interacting with, you know, with them is not what they wanted. So it's, it's a bit like a dating game, I suppose. Um, as a venture capitalist, you're in the fortunate position that you have capital. I, I would say you're in the unfortunate uh, position that you have a whole lot of people that, who have come to you with ideas and you have to be the nasty one to tell them that I'm not going to back you in that one. Yeah. Um, but yes, it often happens that you, you, know, you start this dance and somewhere in the dance you just, you just figure out it's not going to work. We find many entrepreneurs we deal with just don't understand the portfolio effect. Yeah. That we have to get 20 transactions in a portfolio and it whittles down to one, maybe two yeah. that do well. Yeah. Have you found that those are also the odds with you? And if you have, I'm sure that would be the inverse to kind of the world you come from, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so first of all, those ratios that have been worked out in Silicon Valley, are, they are in operation all over the world. Yeah. Um, that one or two or three of your investments will make up for all of the others. However, yeah. Yeah. you've got to go into each one of them thinking that one could be the one that gives you 20, 30, 100 times return. It just doesn't work if you say, oh, this will be the one that's likely to fail and maybe I'll just get my bit of money back. Every single one of them, you've got to think, what happens if this thing goes really big? And you're right, it's the exact opposite of banking. In banking, when you lend money and you make a margin of 1% or 2 or 3%, that means you can only make a mistake of 1 in 100, 1 in 50, or 1 in 33, because yeah. yeah. then it blows out all your capital. Yeah. yeah, in venture capital, you can make quite a few mistakes, provided you've got those WhatsApps in your portfolios yeah. or the yeah. ones that that pay off really big. Isn't it frustrating that you, you can't get the WhatsApp unless you get everything else? I, look, you almost got to catch the whole, you, right? You've got to go broader. Yeah. Um, clearly, you try and manage your risk. And as I say, you try and go for the best ones possible. Yeah. Um, you do all the, all the checks that you can. You do all the due diligence yeah. and all the references. And then you're forced to stick with your decision for up to 10 years. I mean, that's one of the that's other right. disadvantages. Yeah, 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 you can't, yeah, yeah, you can't yeah, yeah. just cut out and say, I've traded out of, out of a listed type of business. And then you learn to live with it. I also think, and, and I have to admit this for myself, is you, I'm still learning a hell of a lot. I mean, here's a person who's been in financial services all his life that's run a, a really big bank. But there's so much safety in a big institution um, and, and then risks that are managed downwards. And now you have to actually really look on the upside and you have to make these big calls that are long-term. Um, and, you know, I do it with my own or my family's own money. So it's a completely different learning environment than what it was, you know, working for a, a big business. So pause and double-click. What's the risk managed downwards? Uh, so it's that you could lose everything. Right. Um, and that you don't have any income while you're doing this. So you make an investment. Most startup investments, even if they've been in the market for two years, which is something that we're looking for, are still not profitable. And then even if they prove themselves, you do get to a stage where you say, well, you can now become profitable or we can now invest and go for another market, which is going to take you into a lost type of situations again. So it's a very, very risky play all the time. It's like playing poker. Yeah. Uh, you've got to put some money in to get dealt your cards. And then to keep in the game, sometimes you have to just keep on putting money. And you don't know what's going to happen until that very last card is dealt and the last bet is placed on the table. Did you? I've got two more questions. But sure. One of the things I love about our conversations is every time we talk, 
you'll say something and then I've got five questions that follow <laughs> on to it. I, I just, so did you, did you set out to be a sort of a tech-heavy type of investment company, VC firm, or is that just kind of how the path went? So I think in South Africa, it is probably less the case that we come up with a completely new technology. Yeah. Let's say a new yeah. medicine yeah. or a new type of solar. And it's far more about taking developed technologies and saying, what is the business model around them? Yeah. How can we implement them yeah. to solve a problem in South Africa? How can we use coding skills to solve unemployment? There's yeah. a business called Codex. How can you use solar panels um, to reduce the dependency on ESCOM and stop burning coal? Yeah. Um, and that's by financing it, because yeah. some people want solar, but they don't want to pay the upfront costs. So tech is important. The thing about tech is that can shape completely new business models. It enables new ways of doing things. But it isn't for me in the first instance about the tech. Gotcha. It is about the entrepreneur, about the idea, the concept, the business model, and proving that it has a bit of traction. What we're all looking for is traction. And once you've got traction, then you can do great things. So we've spent the past few minutes talking a lot about scale, right? Um, this is my last question. And I asked this question to you deliberately as my last question in this particular specific segment because it is as I'm growing in my leadership journey one of the questions about which I am I am consumed which is this and it's threefold the first is when you were choosing people how did you know you had the right team and you answered it a bit earlier and the second is this what happens when you've got somebody really senior and they're not cutting it okay as an individual, I don't like conflict. So I can tell you this was a very difficult thing for me is sometimes sitting down with somebody and having that conversation. But to make it fair, what we always had is a very clear understanding of what their output requirements were. Right. Whether it was sales or return on equity or customer satisfaction, it was very clear. And we would have a very regular discussion about that. So that when we had to have that uncomfortable discussion, it certainly didn't come out of the blue. There was no surprise there. Right. And I think that just made it easier for people to understand. Right. And it was also easier for me to have that conversation with the respect that it deserves. Right, right. And, and did you find that it helped you mitigate a lot of what would have otherwise been very murky waters in I, how you manage relationships? I, I, absolutely. Because the last thing you want to do is say to somebody, hey, I'm sorry, it's not working out. And I say, but why? I think things were going so swimmingly. So, so as much as I believe in empowerment, and really I, I'm sure if you speak to my team, they'll say they can't believe how empowering it was. It was with empowering, but within the constraints of strategy. We all knew where we were going. And secondly, these regular discussions about what the outcome of that strategy has to be. So focus on the outcome would be maybe my message to other people out there as well. Whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're running a big corporate, in the end, the outcome says it all. Really cool. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to chat to Michael a bit about this thing called work-life balance. Because I ain't got it. Maybe he can give us some advice. <laughs> Stay tuned. Welcome back to Osmosis. Fellow entrepreneurs, if you're like me, then I know you battle with balance. How to balance your body, your, your life, your health, your wealth, your family. And so one of the things I'm fascinated by talking to entrepreneurs who've done well is how do they get the balance right? So once again, we're in conversation with Michael Jordan. And Michael, I, I am curious about how you get it right. So how do you get right the family business mix, this thing they call the work-life yeah. balance. Does it exist? So I don't think it does. I think um, it's a fairy tale to say that it does. Mm. And to think that you can have everything is not realistic. Sure. So it's perfectly fine for you to have a 95 job and have a great family life and a life with friends and that's wonderful. 
if you really want to be successful in anything, if you want to be the best, I don't know, tennis yeah. player in the world, 100%. or you want to start a business and you want to really succeed in it, there are going to be times where you have to make trade-offs. Yeah. And those trade-offs can be family, and it can be body, and yeah. it can be friends, and so on. So if you ask me what my worst trade-offs were, they were actually time that I didn't spend with my children when they were growing up and with my family. So it's really important to have a family that supports you, my wife, uh, to have a wife in my case that, that supported me. And I did that for many years. Today, I'm fortunate to have a much better balance. So it does pay off in the end. Oh, I if I, uh, so, so the one is uh, you have to recognize you can't have everything. But maybe you have to be careful that you don't burn out and that you don't put those things too much at the extreme. So you have to be very knowledgeable about that. If it's your family, you have that discussion with them. And then the other one, of course, is your body. Is You, you just can't take your body to the edge all the time. You sure. have to eat healthy. Sure. You have to keep on exercising. Because sure. in the end, you know, that's your chassis. That's the vehicle that's going to carry you for the rest sure. of your life. So I'm not saying just trade it off completely, but understand at the same time that you can't have it all if you want to achieve excellence in any field. How did you do it? So that's, I, I hear the philosophy. <laughs> yeah. So how did you do it? Did you sit down with the kids and help I, them understand the hours daddy was working? Yeah, if I could do it all over again, I would probably do it properly and I would have proper discussions and I would talk to them about it and I would actually make them part of the decision. I wouldn't say, this is my decision, I'm doing it all for you. I'm saying, what, what do you want? As it turned out, I would probably get sucked in by the excitement of the moment. I mean, I loved what I was doing. I loved the intellectual stimulation. I loved the people. You know, and I love the sense of achievement that comes with being in the middle of a game and playing the game to the, the best of your ability. But now that I'm able to look back at it, um, I, I can say that trade-offs were made and I think that they could have been handled better. And this is probably not something a lot of people will tell you, but I just don't see how you can be kind of a winner at every single game that yeah, you play. Yeah. You have a very competitive streak in you. I mean, it's, it's not hard to spot, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I've also interacted with you on a number of occasions, so I know that you're not a participant. You want to win. Where does that come from? You know, um, I, I suppose I am. Yeah. Um, but in a funny way, I think we all are. You know, if, if you go and watch a proper game, yeah. whatever sport you're interested in, yeah. I mean, you get really animated there. And then for me, it's sometimes sad to see those same people who can get so excited about, I don't know, Amakosi or about yeah. the Springboks yeah. or whatever, yeah. and then they go back to work and it becomes mundane, and they, they don't care as much about whether their business wins or whether you know, the delivery is on time and so on. So for me, it's the, the very same thing that we're going to get excited about sports that makes you excited about winning. It's just you know, something that makes all of us thrive under, under that type of competitive pressure. Do you think we all have it innately and we just forget? And we get into the lullness of life? Or do you think it's something we learn and then we get addicted to it in the learning and then we have to do it over and over again? Now, if you look at some of the alternative education techniques, which, uh, like Montessori, for example, right. which, which I think is a very interesting, right. different way of looking at, at our conventional education system, they also say, don't make your kids competitive too early because you take some of the joy out of the game. Right. I can completely buy that. But then I do think you get to a natural stage where all of us just want to, I don't know, show off or want to prove ourselves or you want to gain a little bit of confidence by competing. I do think that's a natural thing and it's healthy. Of course, those things can also go to too much of an extreme. So if you I can once again take sports as an analogy, I would love being able to play very hard against an opposite team 
but then afterwards go and have a beer with them, knowing that the game is over now, the whistle is blown, and you can say, hey, that was a good tackle, or, you know, caught the ball really well over there. Right. So it's a natural thing, but it also needs to have its limits. When does it start and when does it end? And in business, that also is the concept of fair play. You want to compete really, really hard against your competitor, but you want to do it in a fair way. You want to play it according to the proper rules of the game, moral and legislative. Little Birdie tells me that you are CEO of F&B. And um, I think you'd already done the iPad program by then. So you'd rolled out these massive iPads and everybody was going around with iPads on F&B. And then you went and decided that you were going to create your own currency. And you got a call. Reserve Bank Governor said, do you know that um, you're kind of breaking the law here? <laughs> so tell us a bit about that whole time. And this was, I don't know how many years, could it have been 15 years ago? It wasn't my idea. I've got to say that was my boss at the time, Paul Harris. He came up with this idea, say, let's launch our own currency. It was at the time of the dot-com boom. And people thought banks were dead and they can't come up with good strategies. We said, let's start a strategy. And it's true, we launched what is today a loyalty or rewards program. We launched it as a currency. And our whole idea was to make a currency that's stronger than the RAND, uh, a currency that if you earn it, you can buy better things with. We would do group deals with it. Um, and yes, I did receive a phone call from the then Deputy Governor, Jill Marcus, who I respect <laughs> and I fear. And I stood up. I said, Madam Governor, I just want to tell you, as I'm talking to you on the phone, I am standing up. What now can I help you? And she said, well, she, she said, I'm the sole issue of currency in the country. It's the RAND, right. and you shall desist. I said, Madam Governor, I shall desist. But <laughs> I think it's a bit of a pity. And I know eBucks isn't what they say Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are today. But the whole idea of starting a new currency, sometimes I'm a bit sad that we started it in Santon and not in Silicon Valley. 100%. Who knows where it would have been? Yeah, yeah. So one of the challenges we face in South Africa is we have, it seems to me, a system of regulation and legislation that is quite fixed in its, in its way. And you have an entrepreneurial environment that is fairly innovative. And these two are just not connecting. These worlds are not coming together. How we allocate capital, how we do transactions, how we do contracting, doesn't work with the speed at which entrepreneurs need to unlock capital and the complexity of the documentation we're sending through. So I want you to imagine, just for, for a moment, that I'm Cyril Ramaphosa, and you have an audience with me, and I'm saying to you, Michael, I really want to unlock this thing called entrepreneurship. I want to build SMMEs that are scalable, that answer global questions. What should I be doing? What would you say? So I'd, I'd say there are three components. There is a regulatory process that you mentioned. Yeah. And I think those things are quite well known. Make it easier to register and start a company. Yeah. Make it easier to obtain bank funding. You know, people struggle with getting the bank funding. Make it easier to register for, let's say, tax purposes and so on. There's a whole World Economic Forum that shows you what you can do there. I'd like to, if, in asking you, Cyril, Ramaphosa, <laughs> um, on attitudinal and on the hard skills. The attitudinal stuff is make it a role model to be a successful entrepreneur. Many of our youth want to be a disc jockey or a celebrity like you are or a sports star, but there can only be so many. Um, make it more aspirational to run your own business and to solve a real problem. And sure. that you can do with role models and you can do it with education. And that brings me to the third point about hard skills. Unfortunately, the game in the world has become global. Yeah. To really compete in most industries, yeah. it's not just the South African competing against the South African, yeah. it's the South African against the South Korean, against the Chinese, against the Brazilian. 
And one of the sure way, uh, ways of winning is knowing more about your topic, having that expertise. So I would fix our entire schooling and our education system. Um, more than 1.1 million kids go to school every year. Less than 400,000 go and uh, write and pass matric. Less, just over 200,000 get to go sure. to university. The ratios really are shocking. We don't do well in maths. We don't do well in science. Now, these are all quantitative things that you need to run a business. So I know it's a long-term answer. It's not a thing that, that will change everything tomorrow. But we've got to get education right because there is no greater empowering tool for anyone than having a proper education. Now that you've raised it, you were CEO of one of the largest banks in the country for a long time. Why is it so difficult for banks to lend to entrepreneurs? You know, if, if I could go back now, that's definitely something that I would change. It's something that I've experienced from the other side. Banks have big targets to grow mortgage lending, and that's probably good that people can have a roof over their head. They also have targets to grow credit cards. You could argue with how good that is, because it often drives consumption, credit cards and personal loans. And while there are targets to grow business loans, I just think that that is something that is far more important for the South African economy. It creates our productive capacity. Small businesses are the ones that help uh, uh, unemployment, resolve unemployment. So I think much more focus should come either from the banks themselves or maybe through the subtle pressure that uh, regulation and authorities can bring onto banks. Yeah. Don't grow the things that help consumption. Yeah. Grow those things that help production and help create jobs. One of the conversations we have with leaders like yourselves when we have this kind of conversation is about where South Africa is and where we are going. And it isn't necessarily one about where, where do you sit on the political divide, but it is about how do we build an inclusive, sustainable society. Yes. What do you think our legislators, and I speak specifically for, here for our politicians, what should they be looking at in terms of how we build an inclusive society. So it, it's actually a little bit sad that we still have such a long way to go. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we've got some of the ingredients that are wonderful. We have a beautiful country. We have wonderful, friendly people. Yeah. Um, we dream about the greater future for our children, everybody yeah. together. Yeah. Um, I'd say one of the pities is we haven't had such great leadership yeah. in, the, in the recent past. And I come back to education, that should have been better. We should have had many more people that own their own houses. Yeah. We should have formed more people that are studying in, in tertiary um, uh, facilities to do so. We should have started more businesses. Now, all the ingredients to fix South Africa are in South Africa. So it's just a question of getting the belief back. You know, as an economist, um, you can stimulate the economy by lower interest rates or lower tax rates or more fiscal spending. But the cheapest form of stimulating an economy Confidence. confidence you inject confidence in there and things will happen. Now, I think we could be at the beginning of a really good decade. So if we can just get people to believe again, if you could get you know, the household to renovate the house, if you get the farmer to put in that road that they held back on or the dam, um, if you can get the big companies that actually do have the cash resources or the bank facilities available to do that, and if everybody were to just believe and have confidence, we could grow at 5%. And we could be creating hundreds of thousands of jobs every year. So I want to be play a part in that, obviously in a very small business type of role. But I want to make South Africa better. And um, I, I have confidence that we could have a, a good decade. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a credit to society and to our country that you are here. Because th there are many other places in the world you could be. You're not yeah. without means. So you could yeah. choose to be in any part of the world. And that you're still here and you're still invested in this beautiful country of ours. Well, well, thank you, but I love South Africa, and I love South Africans, 
And I must tell you, I get genuine joy out of making things better. You know, whenever there's a business that, I don't know, helps with education or helps with solar power, um, I have to admit that I get a kick out of that. Yeah. Your, as we wrap up, there are a couple of burning questions that I think it would be remiss of me not to ask. So, now that you're a venture capitalist and you work with entrepreneurs, um, what is, to you, the one thing entrepreneurs need to keep constantly top of mind in running their businesses today that will help them grow their businesses tenfold in the next 10 years? I think it's um, making sure that the basic disciplines of execution are there. Um, it's so easy for somebody to start saying, okay, I've got that now, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, if it's a shopkeeper, they'll tell you the value of daily cash up. Yeah. Every single day, yeah, 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 know yeah. whether the yeah, cash yeah, yeah, is yeah. there, what you've sold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say the farmers that are the most successful are the ones who count their sheep every day or count their cattle every day. Yeah. Because you're actually not just counting the cattle. If one is missing, you'll wonder where they are, you'll find that there's a hole in the fence or yeah. that they haven't eaten well. So those are sound like basic disciplines. Count your cattle, do your daily cash up. But it's the basic of business that if you continually do them well and they become a habit, that set you up for much greater things. Right. And then our final question. So, you know, entrepreneurs love to spend time talking to business leaders like yourselves. And I suppose all of us, because we have a lot of questions to ask, and necessarily we ask questions based on our own sort of experiences. But when we were doing research and we thought about what's the one seminal question entrepreneurs would all like to ask Michael, it is this. So, press is now out about what you're doing with Bank Zero, and it looks fantastic. Are we to see you back on the JSC, backlisted again, board meetings again, uh, quarterly analyst uh, um, projections and forecasts again? Is that where that, that journey goes? I, I really hope not. And, <laughs> and, and it's not just because I don't feel like doing it, but it's because the business model of the future is so different to the business model of the past. What's happened here is a small group of um, colleagues um, that are highly competent in the field have put capital in the business. Um, in many cases, I've said they're willing to work for no salary mm. with this purpose of changing banking in South Africa. So we've been able to do this with our own capital and without the need to go to institutions or to go to the JSE. Um, that gives you tremendous flexibility. It allows you to think long term. It allows you to be transformational as well in making bank fees, for example, far more competitive that you would do if you had had an institution on board. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, we, we're not aiming for the JSE <laughs> in this instance. So to disrupt, into, uh, to disrupt the space from, from the outside. And, and, and to do it with a longer-term model that is really focused on the customer. Michael, it's been a pleasure. We, we really look forward to interviewing you, to spending some time with you. Thank you for welcoming us to your fantastic Thank office. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. It's actually really been a great time. In the thriving metropolis of Stellenbosch, that's how we leave it, with the one and only Michael Jordan. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. And, of course, any queries or questions that you have, just leave them for us in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. I thoroughly hope you've enjoyed this journey. I am learning as much as I hope you are listening to business leaders like Michael. And I'm sure when we meet at some point in future, it'll be to have more intelligent conversations about how do we take South Africa forward. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with our leader for this week. See you again next week when we have another conversation about how we learn through the process of osmosis.
The most important investment you can make in your own life is to develop and build yourself as well. So go on to our website, vusitembewayo.com. There, you'll find a series of courses and masterclasses that you can take that help you migrate yourself to the next stage of your life, in your personal life, in your business life, and in your financial life. As we roll out these programs and courses, we'd love for you to come along with us on the journey. So yeah, visit the website and buy a course. Cheers. Cheers.